Howdy, folks. Welcome to Redneck Gone Green. I'm your host, David Cobb, and I am the Redneck, and you damn right I've gone green, and I hope you will, too. Uh, because but for us, going green means, all right, yes, green party, but it also means deep ecology. It means sustainability. It means getting back into balance. You know, the whole point of this program is to go beyond the ain't it awful that we hear so much out there. And by the way, it is awful. The ecological catastrophe is not coming. It's here and getting worse. But wait, there's more bad news because we're also not just in late stage capitalism anymore. We're literally in end stage capitalism because the political economy known as capitalism is in its very end stages. But don't celebrate that because the reason it's in its end stage is because with robotics, automation, technology, artificial intelligence, literally the entire political economy is restructured. And if it was just being restructured, we could celebrate, but we can't celebrate because the ruling, no, pardon me, not the ruling elite, because they're not better than us. The predatory class who controls the society are literally using all of this technology to destroy the planet faster than Mother Earth can replenish herself, which brings us to the third crisis, which is a political crisis. Literally, the political crisis is not that our current electoral system cannot solve the problems of of uh, the climate crisis or white supremacy or uh, capitalism. The, the system wasn't designed to do that, y'all. I'm saying something different and actually more scary. And that is the system can't even do what it's designed to do, which is to maintain order. That's the reason that we have a political crisis that is provoking fascism, actual fascism rising, not just in the United States, although it is rising in the United States, but across the world as well. And it is in that context, we could spend the next of our hour together breaking down why that is so horrible. So I hope we can all agree that's horrible. But the whole point of Redneck Gone Green is to go beyond that. So I hope you have a sense of urgency. But I also want to say there is hope. There are mass movements that are happening now. And just as throughout history, there were mass movements that fought against what seemed like insurmountable odds and literally changed the course of U.S. history or world history. So I want you to feel empowered too. And I want you in that sense of empowerment to ask yourself, what is to be done? And it's in that context that I'm really excited about this program because today we're going to be talking about proportional representation, which is an electoral voting system that is actually a solution to so much of what ails the electoral process in the US. And we are joined by a leader in the movement for proportional representation. His name is Kaladin Myers. He is the founder and president and executive director of the Proportional Representation Coalition in California. Kaladin, welcome to Redneck Gone Green. Thank you so much for having me, David. And thank you for the very generous uh, and enthusiastic introduction. It's great to be here. Fantastic. So the first thing I want to do is to ask you to help educate the viewers and listeners, because as you know, we've got viewers who are watching live on Rumble and YouTube. So welcome. And if you are watching live, make a good use of the comment section and make a comment, ask a question. We'll incorporate that. If you are listening on our podcast, thank you so much. If you're listening on or have read about us on Substack, Again, something to read, something to listen to, something to watch, 
no matter what platform you're on, I'm going to remind you, like, subscribe, and share so we can break out of this corporate algorithm and let people know the good news that there are, in fact, solutions to our problems. And Kaladin, on that tip, what the heck is proportional representation? Good question. Um, so let me take a brief step back a little bit. And when we're talking about proportional representation, to David's point, what we're really talking about is electoral systems and electoral system design. So just even kind of explaining that, uh, one of the biggest obstacles that we have when explaining what proportional representation is, is that electoral systems are incredibly abstract and unsexy. They're very far removed from public consciousness. So again, taking those steps back, looking at what our democracy is, what are some of the institutions that make our democracy a democracy? In the United States, we have a Bill of Rights, we have a constitution, we have a bicameral legislature, and three branches of government. Yes. Bicameral legislature. Remember, yes. like what we're trying to do, like not everybody geeks out on the policy reforms the way you and I do. So when you say bicameral legislature, what do you mean? Excellent question, David. I mean that we have two different houses in our legislature. So we have Congress and we have the Senate. Uh, a lot of democracies around the world, they have a unicameral legislature, which means that they have one house and that's usually a singular parliament. So rather than voting and electing uh, a congressperson and a senator to represent your interests in our legislature, you're just a single person. But in the United States, we have two houses, so those are two different elections. Um, that said, to David's point, yes, not everybody knows that uh, we have a bicameral legislature, but hopefully you know that we have three branches of government, a Bill of Rights, and a Constitution. These are some of the institutions of our democracy. But what I would argue is an equally, if not more important institution, it's our actual electoral system. So if our democracy is a government by the people, for the people, elections determine how it's made up of the people. So, so I saw that point. So because I, I, I want to break it down a bit, uh, Caliban, because there is the structure, there, the U.S. Constitution, which is the supreme law of the land, that kind of the, the here's how it works. And there's the structure. There is the executive branch. There's the legislative branch there's the judicial branch. But you're talking about the voting system, which is actually not prescribed or mandated on what kind of voting system we have to use for either Congress or US Senate or local or county or state elections, right? So as if I'm understanding you, you're saying you're talking specifically about the voting system, not about the structures. Yes, the electoral system. That's the specific terminology that political scientists like to use because there's a lot of confusion. Some people call it voting reform, voting systems, voting methods. And voting methods are different things than electoral systems, which it's a fairly granular and that's a very uh, academic differentiation. But it is an electoral system. It's the overall way of determining how votes are translated into seats. So generally speaking, yeah, David, do you want to say something? No, no, that, that, so in other words, the electoral system is how our elections operate, the, 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 the voting itself. And I just want to be clear, the U.S. Constitution the, does not mandate or require this, what we call first-past-the-post voting system or electoral system that we have. Indeed. No, it does not. There's nothing in the Constitution that says you need to have elections this way. In fact, the Guarantees Clause of the Constitution uh, actually allows states to sort of experiment with the different election systems that exist. So going back to proportional representation, broadly speaking, electoral systems can be categorized in two ways. They are either majoritarian, and or plurality, they're kind of synonymous. So let's just call them majoritarian and proportional. So what we have in the United States and every all 50 of our state legislatures is a majoritarian system. Whereas most, the vast majority of advanced democracies around the world, they use a proportional electoral system. And that's often referred to as proportional representation. 
So again, taking a step back as foundational as our electoral system is, we're not taught about an eighth grade civics class. Most people go their entire lives without really understanding why our elections are structured the way that they are in the United States. And that's largely because we inherited them from England when we became a country, when we became the first democracy. And a useful metaphor that I like to think about when it comes to democratic elections, especially in the United States, it's the story of the tortoise and the hare. So the US was the first out the gate, like we were, we were the hare. We accomplished so much. We really demonstrated to the world that a government of, by, and for the people is possible. And we don't need to be beholden to these kings and queens, but that we can structure a society that's based fundamentally in equality. I mean, say what you will about the founders and if it really was equal, but we were able to do that. And one of the ways we were able to do that was by holding elections and selecting who our leaders are over a sustained period of time. Um, but like the tortoise and the hare, we got ahead and then we kind of stopped. We stopped innovating and we stopped really asking ourselves as a people, how do we want our democracy to function? And instead, all the other countries around the world have slowly, steadily, and surely made progress. And they have been asking themselves these questions and getting better and better at actually representing their populations in their legislature. And they've done this by integrating and adopting more proportional systems into their elections. So kind of going back to like that majoritarian system and what we have in the United States, essentially it can be summarized as this, it's winner take all uh, and first past the post. So David, you live in Northern California. Let's talk about California state legislature, where you live you elect one assembly person and you elect one state senator. Um, one is responsible for representing the entirety of their district. So what we have is single member districts. What systems with proportional representation have is multi-member districts and votes are translated into seats in a partisan dimension. So if a party receives 20% of the vote, then they're going to receive 20% of the multiple seats. Whereas in a single member district and with majoritarian winner take all elections, which is what we have in the United States and all of our states and our state legislatures, it's incredibly difficult and it's virtually impossible for alternative parties outside of the two major ones to actually gain representation because you have to deal with the spoiler effect because we have single member districts. Um, so really over time what that does is it disincentivizes voters to select a party that they genuinely prefer because doing so is actually going to risk splitting support uh between the major party that's closer to the alternative party you prefer and electing a most let's call it the party that you really least prefer um you know, it's interesting because as you describe this, uh, Kaladin, and I love the tortoise and the hare because it makes me think, you know, when the U.S. declared the uh, came into being with the Declaration of Independence and uh, said we're going to reject monarchy as a form of rule, uh, which is a good thing, right? We don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Like that was a brilliant thing. Now, too bad that enslaved Africans were not considered people. Too bad that women weren't considered people. Too bad that the indigenous humans were not considered people. So we'll do a show on who is a person and why. But the idea of rejecting monarchy as a form of rule, that's a big deal. And the idea that we would have elections to elect representatives as opposed to the divine right of kings is a big deal. And so at the beginning, the idea of elections at all is like a, a great leap forward. Uh, and so a cutting edge development. But now while the rest of the world has leapfrogged past us to experiment with preferential voting systems and single transferable vote and proportional representation and much better democratic electoral systems, we're still suffering under this antiquated first past the post 
uh, system that's kind of nuts because if I understand the math in a single member district, if you get 51% of the vote, you get 100% of the seats. And it gets even worse because if there's multiple parties, actually, you can get 100% of the of the seats and the, ele and the electorate with even as little as 40%. Like, this is really fundamentally undemocratic, isn't it? Yes, indeed. It's, I mean, what's, uh, oh, I wish I could remember the quote off the top of my head, but somebody once said that the United States doesn't really have a democracy. We have an autocracy that just transitions between one of two parties because in the current political climate, what we have and what winner take all elections produce, and this is was I was really kind of trying to speak to, is it's as simple as this. We have two parties because we have a winner-take-all election system. And most advanced democracies have multi-party legislatures because they use proportional representation. So it's as simple as that. And you don't need to understand the science behind it at all in order to get the simple fact away that if we want more parties and we want to bake compromise ongoing dialogue and consensus building into how we actually create policies and legislation, then we need to have proportional representation, which is what we're working on uh, at ProRep Coalition. Folks, you're listening and or watching Redneck Gone Green. I'm your host, David Cobb. I am the redneck who's gone green, and I hope you will too. We're speaking with Kaladin Myers, who's the founder and president of the Proportional Representation Coalition. Uh, he cares deeply about improving our democracy. Uh, when not advocating for electoral reform, Kaladin likes to play picketball, does carpentry, read Barbara Kingsolver novels, and uh, hangs out with his domesticated forest creature, Juanita. Uh, now, Kaladin, I want to circle back because you actually made a very important point uh, about representation itself, right? Uh, and I want to, and you said it's as simple as that. Right. And so I want you to break down then how would it actually work? How do we like not not the process to change it? And we'll get into the ballot initiative. But like what as a voter, what would that mean for me? Can you repeat the question? What would it mean to transition what it mean to for me a as a voter? Because you already talked about how I'm only electing one person. So I go and I choose on my ballot. I choose one. How would it how would that change for me, the voter? And what would the impact be? OK, well, let me ask you this. Um, well, say there's two parties. Let's just say let's just hypothetically talk about two parties that may or may not exist called the Democrats and the Republicans. Um, David, without uh, you needing to share what your voting history is, say uh, that you prefer the Democratic Party because you're forced to vote for the lesser of two evils. Um, where you are in Eureka, I, I'm actually pretty sure that it leans Democratic, but say, hypothetically, you vote for a Democrat, but a Republican wins. What does that mean for your vote? Well, I, I didn't elect anybody. You didn't elect it. You wasted your vote. Your yeah. vote isn't actually being used to inform how legislators are acting and behaving because you aren't able to select one that's actually representing your interests. And frankly, if I am forced to vote for the quote lesser of evil uh, by by holding my nose and and pulling the vote button for the Democrat, even if it the Democrat wins, I would argue I didn't really get what I wanted anyway. Uh, I like Eugene Debs' uh, quote, who famously said, "I'd bet rather vote for what I don't want and not get it uh, than vote for what I don't want and get it." So that's how I feel whenever I'm being forced, like. Are Democrats like marginally better than Republicans? Yes, but they're, for me, clearly the lesser of two evils. Yeah, so there's representation um, in that dimension that like you're pretty unsatisfied with either option. But on the flip side of that coin is even if you were satisfied with just having two options and the option you prefer ended up losing, then you've wasted your vote. You don't have a say. Proportional representation ensures that every single vote contributes to the makeup of the legislature. So because there's multi-member districts and because votes are translated directly into seats and one party or candidate's victory isn't at the expense of another, 
what that really creates is a democratic system where every single voice is actually contributing to how policies are enacted. Um, it does it by make, making sure that all of the votes are proportionally allocated and do inform the makeup of the legislature, but it also does that by offering more choices. So if we have the political spectrum, we have the left and the right. Right now, in a two-party system, it's completely oversimplified. So no matter where you're at within that left side of the political spectrum, if you're a moderate or if you're a, a green and a progressive Democrat, you're still forced to flatten basically your diverse preferences into one overarching party. And it makes it incredibly difficult to share with your elected leaders really what you want, because at the end of the day, they're going to be beholden to the larger party interests. You know, I like this idea of if uh, if a party or an idea gets 20 percent of the vote, they can still get 20 percent of the seats. That just fundamentally seems more fair and just like on the map, a better system. I agree. I mean, it's it's kind of a no brainer. And I, you also said something I thought that was really important and powerful, and that is that this approach could help to address some of the polarization and the name calling and so forth. Could you go into that a little bit? Because I think that for many of us who are watching the national politics and getting so just incredibly turned off by it, like the idea of finding a way uh, to bring and build consensus through an electoral process is pretty darn exciting. So make the case that proportional representation actually is a consensus building electoral system. Yeah, David, these are such good questions. You're such a good interviewer and you're, you're really teeing these up quite conveniently for me because <laughs> we think about this and we're making these arguments all the time and constantly thinking about how we can improve them and make them a little more streamlined and simple. So I'd actually really love to hear from you after I go, um, how you think proportional representation contributes to consensus building. But generally speaking, again, taking a step back, pre-2016, maybe we're talking about the 1990s, if you're at a dinner party and you're talking about politics, you can have a conversation. If you're a Democrat, you can have a conversation with a Republican. And you can say that, look, we disagree on some things, but you know, fundamentally, there's a lot that we do agree on. So let's work together or let's not have this sort of toxic binary zero sum politics that makes you evil and me wise and angelic, um, because that's kind of what we're dealing with now. And why that's happened, it's kind of there isn't any one reason, but it is a symptom of a winner take all election system. So when we're talking about polarization, what we're talking about really is the tendency for legislators to vote strictly along party lines. So right now, if you're looking at virtually any state legislature or Congress, you'll see that there's not deliberation occurring. There, it's we've, we've created a culture of domination and not deliberation. And deliberation is a vital component of a healthy functioning democracy. It's important because when we're deliberating about what policy is really going to equally serve everyone's interests, that means that you need to have a variety of diverse communities coming together and articulating what those interests are. And of course, not everybody's always going to get what they want. Compromises are going to need to be made, but it's through compromise that we actually get some sort of legitimacy and trust for the government. Now, how does proportional representation increase deliberation and consensus building? When you have more than two parties, there isn't a single party with that's going to have an outright majority. So there isn't the ability to dominate the legislating process. You need to work alongside other parties and legislators from different partisan backgrounds in order to enact different policies. So what that does over time, well, what a two-party system does is because it is as polarized as it is at this current political moment, and it doesn't seem like that's going to end anytime soon, it's us versus them. 
it's not all of us together and Democrats and Republicans working together to create policies. It's either Democrats creating policies or Republicans with a multi-party democracy because there isn't that opportunity to dominate. You're forced to deliberate. So what proportional representation does is it bakes compromise into the foundations of the legislative process. You know, uh, thank you for that, uh, Kaladin, because, uh, and thanks for the, both the compliment and also the challenge, because as I think to me about how I think about it and talk about it, you know, one thing I do know is that the two-party system uh, is not mandated. It is a two-party system because our voting system basically encourages choose one and you have to because of the first past the post system. So what it does is it suppresses any alternative views. It makes voting much less competitive and it literally encourages both voter apathy since there are far fewer choices. It puts a damper on any debate and even worse is it, it encourages negative campaigning uh, it in like because negative campaigning works i like what uh the the theorist and academic lisa jane dish says in the tyranny of the two party system she says herein lies the central tension of the two party doctrine it identifies popular sovereignty with choice and then limits choice to just one party or the other so if there is any truth to the analogy between elections and markets, Americans' faith in the two-party system begs the following question. Why do voters accept as the ultimate in political freedom a binary option that they would absolutely protest as consumers? So to me, uh, Kaladin, that this idea of proportional representation is, no, no, this is a multi-party system because this is a complex political ecosystem and there are lots more than just two choices lots more than just two opinions we should actually say that people like cobb who comes from a unapologetic leftist position if i can get 20 30 percent of voters to agree with me then we should have 20 to 30 percent of the seats right not that we should win, but that we should win the appropriate amount. And what has really got me thinking is, wait a minute, this system is fundamentally unfair and this system is actually corrosive. It's encouraging negative campaigning. It's heightening polarization without exploring or expose. Like sometimes there is a binary, right? But it's actually rare. And to me, the idea of proportional representation is, look, we can have a pluralistic society where multiple opinions are able to be expressed and multiple ideologies can actually coexist. To me, proportional representation is the only way you could actually make democracy work. You know, I think if the American experiment is telling us anything, it's uh, well, it's creating a pretty convincing, convincing argument that proportional representation is a far superior method of uh, democracy. You know what? Uh, I got to tell you, Kaladin, uh, usually it takes much longer in the program before Jackrabbit, our executive producer, feels the need to jump in. But he's already raring to go. So Jackrabbit. Uh, Come on in, man. What's what's on your mind? Uh, how's Kaladin doing? Are you convinced? Do you think he's full of crap? What? <laughs> sure, David. Yeah, I think he's full of crap. No, I don't think you're full of crap, Kaladin. Um, uh, well, one of the things that that comes to mind when I hear you all, well, both of you talking about this, is it does remind me a lot of the force the vote kind of movement that occurred. I don't know how long ago it was. Now, maybe a couple years. A year and a half. Uh, are you familiar with the force of vote thing, Kaladin? I'm not. Would you mind okay. summarizing? Well, so yeah, no, no, not at all. So there was a uh, there was a group of um, there was a coalition of you know grassroots activists and and what have you who kind of got together and were basically demanding from the progressives in Congress when uh, Nancy Pelosi was coming up for a vote to be uh, leader of the House. You know, and there were people who were saying, 
withhold your vote because at the time, because the Congress is so divided, because it's so evenly divided, right? There's it's 50-50 practically for all intents and purposes, close enough so that the handful of supposedly committed progressives could have basically demanded of Nancy Pelosi, either you concede to us whatever what you call it that we want. And that in this case, it was their demand, which I personally don't really think was sufficient or necessarily strategically ideal. Nevertheless, it was a good idea, in my opinion. And that was, you know, we want you to force a vote in Congress on Medicare for all. We want to see like who stands where, who's going to vote for, who's going to vote against it, blah, blah, blah. Right. Okay. The, the point of it though, is that because Congress is so divided, all it requires is people on either party, because we saw the Republicans do this as well. They, they actually followed through with it because the, the Democrats ignored them. Basically they, the Democrats ignored the requests from those grassroots activists, totally just blew them off made fun of them, talked shit about them, put them down, whatever. It was really just kind of gross, right? But um, but the you see that the Republicans actually did make the attempt. They actually went out of their way to force a vote on McCarthy. They didn't let him just like, you know, do a walk-on, right? Why am I bringing this up? I'm bringing this up because we're talking about proportional representation being more democratic. Before I get to the other concerns that I have or thoughts that I have about this, what I want to put to you is, is that not kind of what you're talking about? Now, I realize that that's not structural. I realize that it's, you know, it happens to be a feature of our particular political moment that such a kind of such leverage could be used. Right. But but isn't isn't that kind of what you all are talking about, like a smaller group? Right. Because, you know, you know, you're not talking about how, oh, well, there's going to be an even number of you know, of, of political parties that are going to have equal part, like, like representation, that's not going to be the case, right? It's going to be, there's going to be some more power and some less power. So, so I'm bringing up force the vote because I'm asking you, is it really true that this proportional representation you're talking about are required to be able to leverage political power? So uh, thanks for the question. And for uh, viewers or listeners who may not be familiar with force the vote, uh, I'm going to uh, break it down. Force the vote was an effort on the part of progressives uh, in Congress to force a vote up or down on Medicare for all, right? So that's the background. That's the actual political uh, debate. I want to point something out, y'all. Medicare for all, if you actually just do any polling and say, do you think people should have access to health care as a like uh, as a human right, do you think that ought to be part of the social contract? Every poll that's ever been done fairly on that question has literally come back with super majority. So this is an, this question that you're asking, Jack, is really on point because Medicare for all is a majoritarian position. Upwards of 60, 70% of the American people basically support it. But we can't get it through Congress. Why? Because in the two party system, we have allowed party hacks and party bosses of just one of two parties to play against each other. So, this idea of force the vote was a way to think well, how can we force a vote uh, of the Democrats who had Democrats who had the majority, right? They could have just done it, right? But they wouldn't do it. This is why proportional representation is so much better, is because if we had proportional representation, the the voting system that they use across all of the industrialized West, you know, everywhere they have some version of single payer health care, I would argue it's not that the the us or us citizens or voters are 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 stupid or that we're genetically defective it's the voting system the voting system of a two party system has prevented us from being able to achieve the majoritarian positions around a living wage or around 
uh, uh, Medicare for all or a whole host of different uh, positions that I can show you on the data are majoritarian positions. But because our voting system doesn't allow people with that majority political ideology to get elected, right? So I don't know, Khaled, and that's how I react uh, to what I think is a, a, a very astute question on Jack's point. I want to, I'm curious what you think about that. Yeah, well, uh, lots. And I think that, Jack, you bring up a really great point. Um, acknowledging the fact that the Democratic Party has factions within it. Uh, and I, I think I was talking about this a little bit earlier as well. And AOC even once said, I don't know if it was Joe Manchin or Joe Biden, one of the Joes, but she said, in no other advanced democracy would I and Joe Manchin and or Biden, you know, pretty similar, would be in the same party. So what it sounds like the Democratic, progressive Democratic lawmakers were doing with force the vote was uh, e exploiting more or less the fact that they're lumped together in this big party, uh, not necessarily against their will, but um, because if you do support Medicare for all as a voter, you're forced to select the party that he, that has worked towards that or the one that is patently against it. Now, when it comes to Democrats actually enacting Medicare for all, that gets a little bit more complicated because you have a certain subset or a faction within the Dem Democratic Party that doesn't support Medicare for all, but does support more accessible uh, Medicare. And then you have another faction within the Democratic Party that thinks healthcare should be universal and everybody should have it and it should be free. Now, wherever you are uh, across those two dimensions, because you're forced to pass policy as a whole, and that's the only way to actually get it through, then as a progressive lawmaker, I could see why they were trying to force that vote because they were trying to use their internal faction to pressure the much larger, broader Democratic Party to move forward with a policy item that they prefer. I don't know if that answers your question at all, Jack. Um, but to me, it, it's proportional representation isn't a solution to that. If anything, that's a flaw of our current system, the need for those progressive lawmakers to resort to some sort of force the vote campaign. If we had proportional representation, voters would be able to identify the party that supports Medicare for all, and then that party can go and lobby for it accordingly. Folks, you're listening and or watching Redneck Gone Green. I'm your host, David Cobb. We're speaking with Kaladin Myers. Kaladin is the founder and president of the Proportional Representation Coalition here in California. Uh, I want to remind you, if you appreciate having this unfiltered conversation, please help us by liking, commenting, and subscribing to this podcast and or Substack and or Rumble and our YouTube and our Facebook. We're in all the places and we want to help you, ask you to help us build this audience. Jack, I want to bring you back into this conversation because I know you're the executive producer of Redneck Gone Green. I also know that you weren't as familiar with proportional representation as you have been on some of the, like mutual aid and some of the other stuff. So I think you're a perfect person to continue this conversation. To, to ask if, if you've got questions or other comments. I mean, this is a real live laboratory to see if Kaladin is making sense. Well, thank you, David. And I do consider myself to be a perfect person. So thanks, you're correct. <laughs> um, but what I want to ask you, Kaladin, is um, I'm going to, I'm putting you on the hot seat here. And, uh, you know, I want to know, can you, can you point folks who are interested in this and who are, you know, kind of, my guess is that people who are watching Redneck Gone Green are definitely interested in what can we do to be have a more more representative, uh, you know, government, right? Of course, obviously, we want to be more involved in the decision making process for how, you know, our lives are are kind of like uh, guided and and over overseen. So, um, can you share with us? Examples of where in the world this has worked. I mean, you did mention earlier that other, uh, you know, other countries have uh, experimented more with democracy and the democratic process in the system. So 
Can you share that with us? Can you help us to understand like, oh yeah, this is, this is how proportional representation actually did represent um, uh, the people. Yeah, sure. Well, you know, that's pretty much look at any country around the world that uses proportional representation. You look at Germany, you look at Japan, you look at New Zealand, and you see that they have robust systems of proportional representation in their legislatures. And you also see that, generally speaking, voters are far, far more satisfied. You have higher rates of voter turnout. And when it comes to whether or not the policy reflects the will of the people, you have more confidence in the decision that the legislatures are making. Um, pointing to specific policy items, that's a little, I, I can't do that off the top of my head. Um, and I would also add, uh, David very generously um, encouraged you to ask uh, a lot of the technical questions, which I can answer some of them, but I'm no political scientist. I, more so than anything else, I'm an organizer. So uh, what I can speak to a little bit better is historic instances where a country has actually shifted from a plurality winner-take-all election system to a proportional system. And I can talk about how we're attempting to do the same in California. But before doing that, um, is there a better way that I could answer that question for you, Jack? No, man. I mean, I think that's fine. I, I, I like where you were going with that. Please, can, that was probably going to be like my next follow-up is, is basically like, what did people do? How can we do that in other places? So yeah, go for it. Yeah, well, uh, what can we do? I think, generally speaking, going to what I, we were talking about at the start of this podcast, electoral systems, proportional representation as a concept is so incredibly far removed from the public's consciousness. And how are we really going to educate them about a system that is so abstract and unsexy and something that we've never even heard of? To us, it's as simple as reducing it to proportional representation equals multi-party democracy. Well, Kaladin, right. I mean, I'm sorry. I didn't I'm, apologize for interrupting, but, uh, you know, isn't that just like a, it's like a parliamentary system. Is that, is that not what a parliamentary system is? No, not quite. Not quite. David, do you want to? No, it's, it's, a, it's a common misconception, but that's actually not true. There is a parliamentary system is actually structural, right? The, the, Proportional representation is the electoral system or the voting system that you use to figure out how who gets into those seats, right? So it is true that most other European uh, countries use parliamentary systems. So your confusion is understandable, but it's also actually incorrect. So the point is, you could literally, in fact, uh, Kaladin is leading an effort in California uh, to use proportional representation as a voting system without having to change the structural system to a parliamentary system. Yeah, so what we're doing, that's already a huge lift. Making the transition from a presidential to a parliamentary system is even bigger, which is the, I, to me, and David, correct me if I'm wrong, but the key difference between parliamentary and presidential uh, systems are, is that in a presidential system, we select our executive. Um, and in a parliamentary system, that executive, uh, the executive branch, whoever is leading it or whoever is leading parliament is selected by uh, the legislators in parliament. But that's actually, David, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, that's right. Look, in a parliamentary form of government, the executive body, it is the Council of Ministers, is responsible directly to the parliament. In a presidential form of government, uh, it actually, the executive body is not accountable to the actual parliament and who chooses the leader is the parliament, right? So this is the, 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 it gets, uh, it gets technical quickly, but the most important thing to remember is a parliamentary system is not the same as a proportional voting system. Exactly. And and this is the complications. These technical details are some of the biggest obstacles that we're going to need to figure out how to overcome because there are so many questions. There are so confusion, so many confusions. And all this stuff is so far removed from our daily lives. Like we're talking about things that you need to go to get a bachelor's degree in in order to understand even just a little bit. 
And then you need to get your doctorate to be able to look at the intricacies between these systems and evaluate how that really impacts governing, which I haven't done, but I have started organizing. And part of that organizing involves bringing in a lot of those experts and some of the world's leading authorities in electoral system design and electoral reform to really support our efforts in California. Because ultimately, we're not trying to say to voters, you need to choose what electoral system you want. What we're really trying to do is say, if you would like more parties, here's the way that we can make that possible. And we're bringing together a broad coalition of parties and advocacy groups to essentially make that decision democratically. So what is really going to be in the interest of our most marginalized community, our multiracial communities, our diverse ideologies? Um, how is it if we were to design a new election system, what does that look like? We're not leading with the answer. We're creating a process for deciding that together. And what we are suggesting is that it needs to be proportional. Um, it needs to be reflective of most other advanced democracies because there's lessons that we can learn by studying them and looking at international examples of where reform has been implemented. Thanks for throwing this up here, Jack. I want to uh, bring bring up the Proportional Representation Coalition website and invite you, Kaladin, to just walk us through what, what the purpose of the Proportional Representation Coalition is. Yeah, so our mission is to enable multi-party democracy in California through education and coalition building for proportional representation. So uh, that means that we're focused on two things, as I sort of expressed, educating people what proportional representation is and building support for it. And fortunately, uh, one of the reasons David and I were able to get in touch was because there's a lot of parties and advocacy groups in California that already support proportional representation but they haven't been given the opportunity to mobilize collectively as a unit together. So up until ProRep Coalition was launched seven, eight months ago, uh, all the support for proportional representation in the state of California was fractured. All these people supported it independently and they really didn't have an ability to come together and say, hey, this is a huge lift. This has only been done two other times in world history that a country or state has transitioned from a plural to a proportional system. How do we do that? And that's what we're, that's what we're doing. We're bringing that group together to have that conversation. Um, and we have some ideas. Eventually, we would like to produce a ballot initiative. But in order to do that, as I was saying earlier, we need to build that broad coalition. So at the moment, and this is not reflected on our webpage just yet, and we haven't even made the public announcement, um, but we will be making it on September 7th, and that is that the Libertarian Party of California has joined our coalition, which means that we will have effectively formed, formally, one of the first multi-party coalitions to champion proportional representation in not only California, but the entire United States ever. Um, so, and between the Green Party, the Peace and Freedom Party, and the Libertarian Party, which are three of the four alternative uh to the major parties um the the last one being the american independent party which is the uh, debatably undemocratic and i think i'm comfortable saying that publicly uh that means that between those three alone we have 460,000 registered voters in california who are prepared to mobilize for proportional representation we just need to educate them about it and not only do you have the three major uh, political parties that are ballot qualified or the minor parties that are like the big ones, you also have been able to get some of the non-ballot qualified political parties. Uh, and tell us first what a non-ballot qualified political party is and why that's so exciting that you've got them on board. Yeah. And, and sorry, not to neglect our, our friends of the California National Party and American Solidarity Party. Um, because they're a part of the coalition as well. We just don't have those figures of how many registered voters they have to lump together with that 460,000. 406, that's half a million almost. That's something that we're really proud and excited about. But yes, indeed, to David's point, we do have um, at the moment two non-ballot qualified parties, which means that at, at the moment, unfortunately, neither of them can actually uh, can 
present candidates to run for any elections because they don't have a minimum amount of uh, registered voters uh, signed up under them. And I believe that's around 80,000. And I don't know where they're at right now, but uh, although they are not ballot qualified at the moment, at ProRep Coalition, any organization that's able to politically form um, and comes together as a cohesive unit to say, this is what we want, you deserve a chance at getting a seat at the table. So we're keenly interested in onboarding a, a variety of other non-ballot qualified political parties in the state, of which I think there's maybe six or seven others, um, but their level of activity, it, it kind of ranges a little bit. So it's really exciting to me that that political formations that are that are in formation have also understood, oh, proportional representation is actually important for us. But it's not just political parties that you have been able to inspire into this coalition. Uh, Kaladin, tell us a little more about some of the other organizations and entities that are part of the pro rep co coalition. <laughs> That was that was perfect. But wait, there's more. <laughs> there's, um, there's only six represented now because similarly we have these uh, announcements coming up. But uh, there are a total of eight advocacy organizations that are also participating in our efforts, and a lot of these have already been familiar with proportional representation. Some of them um, we've actually educated them about what proportional representation is, and as soon as they realize that this isn't some loony idea, this is actually the democratic default if you're looking at most countries around the world. And it's a far superior way to organize voters and policymakers. And these advocacy organizations, in addition to Fix Our House and More Equitable Democracy, are have endorsed and are supporting our efforts. Um, and again, we need as broad a coalition as possible because this is such a big lift. It has only been done twice before. And I think you can make those an argument that in the cases that it was accomplished, which are in Japan and New Zealand, they were kind of flukes of history. So this is one of the very first organized efforts to consciously transition from a winner-take-all electoral system to a proportional electoral system. So we're just incredibly thrilled to have all of these advocacy orgs, non-ballot qualified parties and ballot qualified parties supporting us. And this is just the start. You know, it's been seven months and we've found support where we've gone looking for it. Um, I, will, I will say, uh, uh, Kaladin, that that it's pretty stunning, actually, how quickly the Proportional Representation Coalition has actually come together with an all-volunteer effort. I mean, there's no paid staff. Uh, they're just believers in a democratic reform uh, to improve our, our democracy. And... It's also worth noting that both in Japan uh, and New Zealand, where this shift happened, they both happened by starting in functionally the states. I mean, provinces, but, but again, they started there and then spread. So there is a real, there are lessons to be learned at, uh, uh, at not just the fact that everybody, every government that has said, okay, we now need to decide between what kind of voting system, when they study it, they all choose proportional representation, every single one of them, right? And we've got examples of evolutions from a single member district or first past the post to a, ne a new system. So to me, that's a, a pretty telling thing. And I, I gotta say, Kaladin, that the time has just flown by. So I wanna make sure to give you an invitation to say, what can people do to get involved? If folks have been inspired by listening to this conversation, what would you have them do? Visit our site and email us. We have, we're growing so fast that we need as much support as possible because there's a lot of coordination um, involved and there's just an influx of interest that's coming up. Um, Really, hey, what is the website? Don't don't say visit our website without saying the website. ProRepCoalition.org. Um, anyway, P R O. I shared it. To, I shared it to the chat. Okay, great. Yeah, yeah. spelled as sounds. Um, yeah, no, we're in need of leaders, and people are hungry to really advance 
democracy in California and transition to a far better functioning version of democracy. So if you have experience in social media uh, management and fundraising and partnership cultivation, reach out. Like we open the doors to everyone and are constantly looking for um, experts with insight. And even if you're not an expert and you just have the time and energy to devote to something you believe in, contact us. We'll figure it out. We can we can create a home for your political activism. What I love also is to be a part of a coalition where principled conservatives, principled progressives and liberals, moderates are have come together to say, look, we may disagree on policies and we'll fight over policies, but we have agreement that we should have a functioning democratic republic, that this voting system that is forcing people to hold your nose and vote for the candidate that you that you hate the least is a terrible way uh, to do voting. So to me, being able to bring libertarians and peace and freedom and green and the California forward and, 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 there's something kind of exciting about the idea that, oh, you know what? We could actually make this experiment called the Democratic Republic. It could actually work if we just change the voting system. No, I love that as well. It's That's why we're really excited to have the Libertarian Party on board. And David was an instrumental part of recruiting them. Um, because at the end of the day, we have so much more in common than we have differences. Like it's... And it's so frustrating that when you look at the leaders of our country, they can't agree on anything with somebody who isn't part of their group. But if you look at most people in their everyday lives, we figure out ways to cooperate and get along with one another. Um, and the Libertarian Party of California, and the Green Party and the Peace and Freedom Party, California National Party and American uh, Solidarity Party are all proving and demonstrating that partisan cooperation is possible. So it's a really exciting time right now. And on top of all of that, we're proving that it's possible at a moment where 80% of the American public think that it's time for a major political reform. They just don't have a reform to mobilize around. To us, this is a reform. Proportional representation is the reform and we're gonna make it happen. Well, the time has just flown by, Kaladin. So, folks, you're listening to Redneck Gone Green. I'm your host, David Cobb. I am the redneck, and you bet I've gone green. I'm going to give Kaladin a chance to uh, finish up with any final thoughts and then share with you the very exciting show we've got lined up for you next week. So, Kaladin, your last thoughts? Last thoughts? Are, well, just thank you for having me, David and Jack. It's been a pleasure. Um, David, you've been so incredibly supportive. And I, I think Pro Rep getting off the ground is, in many ways, thanks to you and your support. So uh, really excited to be on the podcast. If you guys are ever looking for other hosts, reach out to me, reach out to a member of our board, our coalition members. It's, it's just great that you guys have this platform to talk about really important subject matters, uh, especially with a green perspective, because we need new perspectives. Oh, thank you so much for that, Calvin. And thank you so much for the kind words. I also want to thank Jack Rabbit, who is the unpaid executive producer, making Redneck Gone Green a thing. I want to thank you, the viewer listener. Like without you, we would not exist. I'm happy to tell you we've just hit over 4,000 uh, folks on our Substack. And every week I try, and so far I've done so, a, a short thought piece to describe what topic we'll be talking about on the podcast. Uh, Jack Rabbit, I see that our, our viewership on both Rumble and Facebook and YouTube continues uh, to grow. And thanks to Jack Rabbit, you can now catch us on podcasts. So uh, in every way, Redneck Gone Green, like the Pro Rep Coalition, is getting long larger, stronger, and better organized. Next Tuesday, 3 p.m. Pacific, 6 p.m. Eastern, we'll be joined by my very dear friend, troubadour, musician, rabble rouser, David Rovix. Uh, David is really, uh, he's been described as the musical version of Democracy Now!, uh, 
he is really our generation's Bob Dylan uh, or Phil Oaks, if you will. Uh, and if you haven't heard St. Patrick's Battalion, uh, you got to listen to it. I, I'll tell you, I never listen to St. Patrick's Battalion that doesn't bring a tear to my eye. What we're going to be talking about with the musician is the role of art and culture in social change. That's next week on Redneck Gone Green. Thanks so much for what you're doing. Uh, remember, we're getting larger, stronger, and better organized, and it's thanks to people like you. Peace.